Hi folks, I'm Duncan Guild, child and adolescent psychiatrist. And I'm Victoria Lee, licensed clinical mental health counselor. And welcome to Is There a Med for That? The podcast about teen mental health, behavioral problems, and what to do about them. Victoria and I have been working together for years with kids. Sometimes we use therapy, sometimes medication. Sometimes we just give guidance to parents. And we realize that sometimes kids just need to be left alone. We don't have all the answers, but we've got some of them. We'll do our best to share what we've learned over the years working with struggling kids and their families. We hope you enjoy the show and that we can be helpful to those who have taken on the hardest, most important job in the world, being a parent. Hi, Vicki. Hi, Duncan. How's it going? It's going good. Getting ready for the Christmas holiday. We're gonna to try to put together some podcasts today yeah, for a couple for the the uh, end of the year. End of the year until we really move on to the next stage of our podcast. Next Should phase. Yep. The next phase of our podcast, I think, is going to include a table. We're getting and a table. High We're going to sit at a table. Stools, chairs. Yeah. We're going to start taking a little bit more seriously. Right. Yeah. Ourselves more seriously. Yeah. <laughs> seriously, fun parenting. Um, at a table. We have a new backdrop. Better new lighting backdrop. for the cameras. Yeah. So if you don't recognize us come the new year, it is us. Same people. But same office, different angle. Yep. Um, yeah. What are we going to talk about today? Psychiatric research. Oh, your topic. No, it's going to be fun than that. It's going to be more fun right. than that. All right. <laughs> My topic. So I was actually going to talk about problems with psychiatric research. Problems. We're good at talking about problems. Yes, we are. Short on solutions, high in, high in problems. <laughs> Um, I want to start by um, thanking all the actual psychiatric researchers out there because without them, uh, my practice would probably not be possible. Mm. I'm saying that because I really mean that. I'm You're also not just saying being it because, diplomatic. No, well, I am going to say things that probably sound a little bit critical, mm. um, but I'm really not being critical of the researchers. I'm being critical or the research. I'm being somewhat critical of the way that the research is used in the mm. field and interpreted. Okay. Okay. So, um, does that mean like the people who interpret it should be, are on your shit list or, <laughs> and not the researchers? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, I'm a friend of researchers. Do you have, do you have any real friends? <laughs> I know you have real friends, but <laughs> like real researcher friends. I don't. I kind of wish I did. Yeah. That'd be good. We could have them on the show. Yeah. And they could do a counterpoint. Maybe if they're out there, they could call us and they they call us and correct everything I get wrong. But, um, yeah, research, I think takes sort of a different kind of brain than I have. I've never been good at it, but I certainly respect it. I agree. Well, (laughs) (laughs) not about your brain, but my brain. I don't, I prefer to think in other ways. Okay. So, uh, that aside, um, research is, is conducted, has been conducted for uh, forever and they put this stuff all together and can we be serious for a second? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and they put it together. Have you heard of the term the literature? No. You've not? No. I wonder if this was true sort of in more traditional psycholo- psychology studies Oh, you mean as like well. in school when they refer to the literature? No. No. No, I mean in research when they refer to the literature? Mm. Okay. It's a very doctorly thing. Mm. We probably well, kept it for well, ourselves. Well, then enlighten me. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, the literature is basically the sum totals of all papers and research done in a particular field. Okay. Um, and it's used throughout medicine. My, my mic keeps dropping. Excuse me for a second. Because you're so tall. That's right. You can edit that out, right? 
don't edit You're it gonna out. fix this, right, Ben? Okay. <clears throat> Back in business. The literature is the sum total of all papers and research conducted in a particular right. field. Okay. So it's this vast yeah. collection of papers. You can actually go online um, to uh, PubMed or Medscape yep. and you can look at all the different research papers. Right. Over the years. And it just grows and grows and grows. And doctors tend to refer to the literature when they're talking about research in a particular field. So it becomes very common when doctors are doing a procedure or prescribing medication or making diagnoses to refer to the literature and say, well, the literature says mm. uh, this medication is, you know, the, the standard of treatment, for example. And so this happens in anesthesia. It happens in internal medicine, neurology and psychiatry. I would argue that it's less useful in psychiatry. It's, it's more important to take the literature um, to understand limitations of it. Um, and I think that's particularly too, true in psychiatry. It becomes a little bit of a temptation to justify your practice. Am I sounding critical yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> I had too much chocolate. Okay. It was great. It becomes very tempting to just justify your practice as saying, well, this is what the literature supports. Yep. There's nothing wrong with... Like people, do you feel like people, and maybe you're going to get to this, but do you feel like people just kind of say that? Yes. Okay. They sort of invoke the literature sometimes. Okay. I think as uh, a support for whatever they're doing. Right. I would suppose that in the literature, there might be contrary information too. Yes. So either, yeah. Okay. So it's, um, yeah. So you can say, yeah, usually you can support a number of different uh, viewpoints. There are so-called meta-analyses, which put together various papers in the literature, yep. but still there's conflicting information. Um, so yes, that's what the literature is. It's it refers to all the psychiatric research. Okay. Um, and this is all good. It leads to what's called evidence-based practice. Yeah. You have heard of that. Oh yeah. What's your understanding of evidence-based practice? That it, whatever, like say whatever, um, like DBT, right? Dialectical behavioral therapy is an evidence-based practice because there's research, scientific research that backs up its um, that it's effective. Right. Exactly. So the term always irritated me because it suggests, or maybe because I'm, we're not evidence-based we're, evidence <laughs> we're just winging it. Exa exactly. And it suggested <laughs> that before evidence-based practice, there was fantasy-based practice. Right. That if it doesn't align, it sounds like if you're not that, then you're, you, if you're not you're, with us, you're against us. Right. Exactly. But it's very hard to become evidence-based because you have to have something that's very measurable. Correct. You're anticipating what I'm going to talk okay. about. In psychiatry, it's very hard to measure things. So research studies typically are very good in fields in which you can measure values. For example, blood pressure medicines. You can actually measure mm -hmm. blood pressures. You can measure heart Pretty rates. Pretty straightforward. Very straightforward. Um... Yeah, cholesterol, um, anything with a laboratory value, or even images which you can look at and see differences. Um, they're very objective. The problem is psychiatrists are left trying to make objective scales for things which are pretty subjective. And it's not their fault, so they do the best they can. The problem is it ends up being difficult to do. Mm. So... 
I mean, if you take sort of the most um, sort of rough example would be, I, I ask this to, of patients in the office. I say, you know, what's your mood? Well, it's, you know, it's okay. 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 Can you do a little better than that? So then I'll say, how about one to 10? 10 is the best you've ever felt. One's the worst you ever felt. Do the same with anxiety or anything like that. They'll give me a four, right? And that's useful information to me. But a four might be different to me than to you. That's exactly right. And a four is different, yeah, to the patient than um, to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I do is I judge how they say the number, what they look like when they say it, um, which is something you can do when you're sitting in a room with somebody. And it becomes a very, I sort of interpret it, the number along with what I see, which is sort of qualitative judgments based on experience. It's based on gut feeling, gut feeling. Yeah. People. Yeah. I bet the literature does not like gut feeling. It does not like gut feeling. It's exactly right. Um, so if you're relying on gut feeling, it can support sort of the information that, that you have. You don't need to just rely on gut feeling either, but you sort of combine right. these different things. So that's why right. I combine a four with kind of how somebody looks, right? how they say a four. Um, so if you were to say, you know, if, if research were to do a study and see how an antidepressant works and just ask somebody, how do you feel today? And they say two, and then you check with them a few weeks later and you say, they say five, you would say the antidepressant does better. However, it's really debatable as to how much better, if they're actually better, and how they actually rated themselves. Yep. You see what I'm saying? Definitely. So I think anybody would look at that and say that's a pretty crummy study. Yep, and self-reports are hard. Self-reports are hard. Um, and so to be fair, the different depression scales and different psychosis scales and anxiety scales are more sophisticated than that. There are many, many items However, they all come down to basically quantifying things which are difficult to quantify kind with numbers. Kind of abstract things yeah. versus concrete things. So it would be, you know, your scale, a scale, there'd be different scales that combine, so, or different numbers. So, you know, how's your sleep? One to four. How's your appetite? You know, how's your mood? And so you can make it a little bit more um, descriptive if you include all these various, you know, aspects of being depressed. Mm -hmm. But still, it's limited. Um, it doesn't capture at all what somebody looks like and what somebody looks like is very important to what, what we do. And I mm -hmm. think you'd agree when we do intakes and stuff, if we just had the script, the transcript, it's much less useful, much um, less useful than actually seeing yep. somebody. It, it could be useless even. Yep. You're misleading. Very even. misleading. Yeah. Um, if somebody says they feel like, awful with a big grin. Yep. So... Um, research scales are very, have a hard time picking up on the, any nuances like that. Mm. So that's the first area of difficulty is actually measuring, um, various indicators, measuring moods, measuring even sleep because there aren't, um, there isn't hard data, right? It's soft data. So, so you start with that. Then you move to the fact that even psychiatric diagnoses aren't particularly accurate. We, I think we talked about this before. I forget right. if we've done it in the podcast or not. Yeah. We can do a little call back to our previous episode yeah. on diagnoses. On, on di if we haven't done one before, we'll, we'll do one. But um, yeah, so diagnoses are made basically based... Are you laughing at me? No. No, Angela is laughing at you <laughs> okay. in the background here. 
Anyways. We keep it fun. We do keep it fun. Where was I? You were talking about diagnoses and how they're kind of vague. Correct. Yeah. So we go to the DSM, which is the Bible of diagnoses, right? You can. It's a really large book. It's a large book. Very dry. It's very dry. And I think a lot of people agree that some of it does a pretty good job and some, some doesn't. And the way they characterize diagnoses is very much the same as they'll do these scales, which are, you know, if you have five of the following, meet five of the following criteria, you, you have major depression. Right. And these are also fairly arbitrary, very hard to measure things that come out with diagnoses that sound like they're very concrete and scientific. Right. When in fact, two people could use the DSM and come up with different diagnoses for people. Which happens frequently. Which happens frequently. People start to collect diagnoses in our field. That's right. right. One patient can come in with five or six and parents are like, well, which one is it? And we don't think it's that important necessarily. No. No. So it's the same limitation with, with diagnoses. So you imagine you're trying to do a research study on depression, which is made of his own sort of subjective list of right. questions and then you're trying to measure progress with a scale mm. which is very subjective that's harder yeah so that's sort of yeah go ahead victor well and, the, and i don't know if the next part is going to be a little bit about what about like all the research nowadays that you see that has the brain with different areas mm. lit up and whatnot aren't those pretty yeah very you know kind of like christmas-esque yeah. Christmas tree. It is a holiday uh, episode. Yeah. Um, Do you, I forget where I was reading it, but um, just talking about the criticisms of that and how they, that perhaps they're really, don't even know what they're really measuring yet when they're looking at these pictures. Yeah, I believe that. I think it's a similar, it's sort of similar to what we were talking about in that it is exciting to see different areas light up in functional MRI and look right. at MRIs and sort of measure different structures. But I think the jury's out as to how accurate you really are and so little's known about the brain, what you're actually measuring. Yeah. Is it true that the brain is the most complex thing in the universe? The you human know, brain? I would absolutely say that. However, I don't know if I'm qualified to make that sweeping of a yeah. generalization. I can't think of anything more complicated. Mm. Can you? Yeah, I mean, and what a thought that is to try to study the most complex thing in the universe. I think it's an interesting question if a human brain can actually understand a human brain. Is that possible? It's a good question. Thank you. We'll have to do an episode on that. We'll do an episode. So these pictures, I with think... our new table. At our table. At our new table. Yeah. Um, with Teddy. With Teddy. we got to bring the mascot. dog back. Yep. Um... I think the pictures become very much like the literature in mm. useful tools. However, you can very easily invoke them to say, put a picture up and say, this is what's happening because right. I measured this area and it's smaller or bigger. These are very gross, coarse um, measurements and I think involve a lot of assumptions. Yeah. And I think I have a difficult time when... And again, not every human is balanced, so you don't actually want imbalanced humans practicing psychiatry or therapy. Too late. <laughs> but ideally, if you have a balanced human, I think it's really hard to want to remove them from the equation and just say, let the evidence-based treatment, because a lot of treatment is based on a human delivering the treatment. Yes. It has to go through a human. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think for me, I have a hard time with wanting to only support evidence-based research or best practices in that way, because it feels like you're, there's a whole realm of therapies that get excluded that can be very helpful. Even just like um, a decent human being talking to another human being can be super therapeutic. Right. It's hard to measure that. Yeah. Um, You brought up a term. uh, Yeah. So we have evidence-based treatment leading to best practices. Yeah. And best practices is sort of a buzzword for the way that you're supposed to implement evidence-based treatment. Mm -hmm. So they'll go from the literature to evidence-based medicine. Then they'll go to best practices, how to. Yeah. And at some point in the equation, I feel that insurances get involved and then it's part of managed care that they want you to only be practicing best practices because of the literature. Um, but we believe that excludes a lot of other really important possibilities for treatment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, we've got the measurement problem. It's funny. The measurement hmm. problem is actually something in physics as well. Yeah. I don't remember exactly what it is, but when I was reading a lot of physics. I have not read a lot um, of physics lately, so I can't help you with that one. <laughs> it's actually okay. really interesting if you're not in school. Angela, it's actually more fun than it seems. Um, hmm. Once you're done school, a lot yeah, of things are interesting. Yeah, don't let schooling get in the way of your um, education. One of our favorites here. So then we have the and next... That was a, that's a good one. We, don't uh, let school get in again. the way of your education. We could do a whole episode on that. We might have angry people, but we one. don't mean it disrespectfully, Let's but we mean it. it thoughtfully. Yep. Um, you have the issue sort of compounded by the fact that, and this is why I apologize to researchers in advance, I would say in a stereotypical way, people who do research tend to be mm-hmm. linear thinkers, tend to be more black and white, which right. is really important for what they do, which makes them less... Uh, Attuned to the nuances. Mm. Uh, I think they do nuances less, right? Which makes for good researchers, but it makes it difficult to translate from a field which is very nuanced and based on grays and blurry lines and that kind of thing. The way we interact. Right. Some of my favorite researchers are researcher clinicians. So people have practice in the field. You see that a lot with Mm. therapists, right? Like Gottman or Jordan Peterson. They tend to be people who have clinical experience, but also do research. And they, I find I relate to their research the best. And the way they can talk about it maybe helps. And they have clinical experience to, and they have clinical experience to um, tie in, you verify how the research may uh, actually be sort of used right. and thought about when you actually do stuff. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, this stuff is sort of from mm-hmm. a medical point of view, psychiatry and medicine. I wonder if you run into the same issues or uh, not in terms of some of the other stuff that you've studied in terms of human behavior. Yeah. Again, I think I, my favorite researchers are people who have done clinic, who have clinical experience as well. Um, I can, to some degree, really, I obviously value research and think it's important. And I think that the two sides, if you, I don't want it to be sides, but we can help each other. Research can help keep us more towing the line to some degree can push certain things forward, but I think we can't, um, you can't cut out the rest. That's the problem I have when it, people want to get rid of everything else. I think that's the liability to it. Um, and in, 
mental health or counseling field. Yeah, I, I've read a lot of research in college and, you know, my undergrad and um, graduate school, but a lot of it's very dry. Um, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of, I read a lot of um, Gottman research now, um, mm-hmm. but I think that most importantly is obviously educating yourself as a clinician and as a parent, looking at like, what are the options out there? And then whatever you are going to decide to follow that you're not just relying on the science, but you're also checking with your gut about it. You're also looking at it practically. Uh, Cause I think sometimes people mean very well, but they'll just wholeheartedly jump into something that they really haven't um, explored themselves or really thought critically about. And it, it, that's really challenging because often people are in a crisis in this field when they're coming in. So they're not in a good position to have time to research or consider. And that's why it's our responsibility as clinicians to be professional and to make sure whether we're offering evidence-based treatment or not, that whatever we are offering um, is useful and is good. Yeah. It's going to work. Yeah. Um, I like the critical thinking term because that's one of the issues is... Actually, in, in med school, we would sometimes critically think about research papers. So actually, we did that with research. We, we would talk about actual studies. And each study can be critiqued itself. And you'll find some studies which are very well done, and you'll find others which are absolutely terrible. Peer-reviewed. And unfortunately, it's very easy. No, that's not technically peer-reviewed. Is it? Yeah. Peer-reviewed is... Okay. Yeah, I would say it is peer reviewed. Yeah, your your peers review it. Um, I guess we were sort of doing peer reviews, but it it's hard to separate out the good research from the bad research. In psychology, you know, I think the medication could even be a little bit more concrete to some degree than because when you're measuring a a medication, you actually have this thing that you're measuring, whereas a therapeutic intervention is often very vast and that's really hard to narrow down the components of like, what am I doing to help the client go through a change process? I think the hardest thing about psychology research in general is self-reporting. It's almost always self-reporting. But that's going back to the Gottman. They do self-reports plus they have um, the love lab where they actually watch, they study people yeah, love lab. <laughs> you piqued my um, interest. They have a, a, like an apartment set up where couples go away for the weekend and hang out there and they observe huh. them. And they have, a lot of them are students, I think, um, in the uh, University of Seattle. Yeah, yep, they do know they're being observed. Um, and, but they're... The researchers who are observing are also taking notes and marking certain very specific things that they're researching. And then there's also a physiological component where they're measuring, you know, they're strapped up to the heart monitor plus like the pulse reader. And then they take urine and blood samples throughout the weekend to measure um, like cortisol and other stress hormones after certain interactions. Mm. So I like that because I think often a lot of um, psychology research and counseling research is really just self-reports and that's difficult. I like that because it, it combines lots of different, it combines even objectively watching them. It combines maybe the self-report. So yeah. it's coming back at it from a lot of body, angles, which is kind of cool. Urine. Right. Urine. Got to throw that in for some good research. 
So as far as meds go. Maybe someday though, they, you'll get to that point where you can just pee in a cup and it's like a positive pregnancy test or negative positive depression test. Imagine if be, they could do that. We can become professional podcasters yeah. and talk about other stuff because they won't need us for this. Be a lot more straightforward. Human element. So, so one more area of difficulty in psychiatric research is with medication in particular mm-hmm. is ethical issues yeah. in conducting studies. Yep. So, you know, ethically it's difficult to give one person a placebo or sugar pill who's really struggling, maybe even suicidal. And then you give somebody else active treatment, you know, right. some kind of medicine to compare. Yep. There's a lot of ethical question whether or not you can do that. And it becomes twice as hard when you're talking about kids. What kind of, you know, experimental medication trials can you do? You know, right. would you allow not my your child? Kids. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it becomes even harder um, to do child psych research, which is why most of the medications indicated for kids are 25 years old, because the research is so slow um, and it takes so long to, to um, conduct the studies that a lot of ti- time has passed before you actually get you know, an indication for something. Right. So, hmm. yeah. So... I guess the, there, I think the research and evidence and um, literature is really important, but it's only one aspect of treatment and diagnosis. It, it needs to be understood for its limitations, which is why, as we say, uh, you know, medicine, psychiatry, at least from my perspective, is an art. It's not a science. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. And the application of it. Yep. I agree. So I, I was persuasive. Yeah. You already believe this anyways. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it's important to consider if you're, you know, your kid is going to be looking into treatment or you're looking into treatment and to take it into, uh, take it into mind when you are going to be getting treatment, but to not make it so important that you're eliminating other real viable, good help that's out right. there. So Yeah. We can spend the rest of the episodes saying all the research that we don't agree with. And hey. <laughs> there we go. And there's a couple of really interesting um, psychology experiments done. Most of them are done before updated ethics in the field that maybe we could do a couple episodes on. You know, find the prisoner experiment. Bunch oh, of, yeah. That sounds exciting. Yeah. I, was, I had one more thought about using the literature to back up what you're saying. It's a little like the news in mm. that you can find something to back up what right. you're saying practically all the time. So it's confirmation bias. Yep. So you can pretty much look through and find something that supports what you're saying. So right. you're starting with a conclusion and then you're backing up with a paper. We got to get some papers going that. for our practice here, Doc. <laughs> 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 all right, guys, I hope you have a good rest of the evening and check out some more of our podcasts if you can. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Is There a Med for That? For more information about our podcast and our clinical work, visit our website at medforthat.com. If you've got questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, feel free to email us at contact at medforthat.com. We'd love to answer some of your questions on air. Have a great day.